Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Juan Galt Podcast. I write deep dive essays about top trends at juangalt.com. Today, we're joined by Jeremy uh, from Escape to El Salvador, an organization that helps expats migrate to El Salvador and get all their ducks in a row, including real estate, incorporation, residency, citizenship, and integration with the local community and the Bitcoin community. Today, we had a 45-minute conversation, very efficient, and cover a wide range of topics, including, again, how the local community is going, the kind of meetups, how frequent the meetups uh, are happening, safety in El Salvador, gun rights, self-defense laws, which turned out to be very good. He claims that uh, even gun-toting Texans uh, would be quite comfortable in El Salvador, given these laws, even though they're not perfectly open, you do have to get a quick license and so on, but... Um, Nevertheless, there's strong self-defense laws there. Uh, immigration path for Europeans, Latin Americans, and North Americans, and kind of a little bit about how that works. Uh, constitutional rights in the ongoing processing of the MS-13 gangs, uh, which is a very important and uh, developing story. Uh, the Bitcoin law and the crypto securities law, which there's been some recent developments on since we recorded the podcast, so this one's slightly outdated. We recorded this at the beginning of the month, and there's been some news uh, since. But nevertheless, a good overview of the situation, as well as how El Salvador managed to get paid their national debt, which was coming due uh, earlier this year, I believe uh, at the end of last year. Anyway, yeah, overall, it's a great conversation. We covered a lot of topics, and uh, again, just 45 minutes was very efficient. And so I, I'm looking forward to hearing what you think. Um, check us out at fountain.fm. This is a very cool, the lightning-powered podcasting app where you can actually get paid to listen to podcasts and engage with podcasts. And you can also support um, your favorite podcasters through the app. You can you know, set a, a rate of which you know every second you stream a sad, for example, or you can tip and so on. It's a full-on lightning economy for podcasting and and you know podcasters in their community so it's, it's it's actually a very cool app i i i suggest you check it out it's it's uh really showing the potential of bitcoin and lightning and also if you're in the united states and you want to buy some bitcoin but you're not exactly sure what the best way to do it i strongly recommend swan.com slash huangal swan.com is a dollar cost averaging app which lets you buy bitcoin automatically at a rate that you're comfortable, let's say $10 a day or $50 a week. And it automatically pulls it out of your bank account and sends you the Bitcoin to your Bitcoin wallet in cold storage if that's how you like it, which I strongly recommend as well. And you can get $10 free of Bitcoin for signing up uh, with Juan Galt, which also supports the work that I do. DCA is absolutely the best way to get into Bitcoin. Hands down, trading is very difficult. You can never really time the bottom or the top. Uh, but DCA lets you get an average purchase price. And, and overall, very quickly, you end up break even and slowly stacking sets. So uh strongly recommend swan.com slash Juan Galt. Uh, check it out. And uh, finally, if you'd like to stay tuned with the deep dive content that I create spanning from artificial intelligence to geopolitics to Bitcoin to love, sign up at huangal.com for my Substack. I will not let you down. Thank you and enjoy the show. Jeremy, I, I met you in El Salvador. You run a, a company called Escape to El Salvador, which uh, helps people 
with uh, many of the migration issues to El Salvador for Bitcoiners. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Juan. Thank you for asking and thank you for having me on your show. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you because uh, there's there's a lot going on in the world and there's a lot of people that are looking at the United States and other countries and thinking, you know, maybe maybe I need to go to a country that's um, that's friendly to Bitcoin and where I can meet people that are of like mind. Uh, you and I met at a dinner with some uh, common, some friends in common, some Bitcoiners in El Salvador back in November last year, and I right. uh, had a great conversation. I really enjoyed uh, your perspective, and uh, I thought you had a kind of uh, very strong mission and sense of of of, of purpose there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, you know why you ended up in El Salvador? You're living there right now, and you started this company. You want to tell us a little bit about how that got going and and why you're there? Well, absolutely. Um, obviously, I wouldn't be here without Bitcoin. Uh, I'm a longtime Bitcoiner, and it's something that I'm very passionate about. And so, when the Bitcoin law passed, it really was a no-brainer. Um, my family and I had left the states. A couple of years prior, uh, we were worried about the direction that things were headed as um, as a society, as a government in the United States, and we didn't feel that um, we were comfortable there anymore. And I certainly didn't want uh, my son to to continue to be raised in that environment. So we left and we traveled to a lot of other countries, and we spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe, and then even uh, some of those countries, uh, as remote as they were, started to suffer from the same kinds of um, panic attacks, <laughs> the, the, the mass formation psychosis, if you will, of the, uh, the, the, the COVID panic. And as things were getting terrible there, the Bitcoin law was being passed in El Salvador. So we all just sort of looked around at each other. It was one of those situations where we read about it that morning and, and bought our tickets that afternoon. We knew that El Salvador became the go-to place and we sold everything, went down to backpacks, jumped on the plane and haven't looked back since. That's amazing. Um, yeah, COVID was kind of a wake-up call for a lot of people. Yeah. And um, yeah, that, well, that, that's really interesting. And um, you started this company called Escape to El Salvador. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Escape to El Salvador is, is more like a community than anything else. It's a group of different independent professionals that have all come together for a common purpose. And that common purpose is to help people move to and, and, and start new lives in El Salvador. And so you can think of us as being broadly divided into two categories. There's a residency side of what we do, and there is a business side of what we do. So on the residency side, we can take someone from uh, being a uh, being a tourist, uh, to being a legal resident, to being a permanent resident, to being a citizen and getting the Salvadoran passport. So we can we can walk you through the entire journey. And on the business side of things, we can help create and administer Salvadoran corporations. And um, whether you want to use that to, for example, you know, buy property and develop it or whether you have some other type of business idea, you can certainly have holding companies for uh, for Bitcoin or other digital assets. Um, or you can get involved in what's going on with Bitcoin City. So there's a lot of opportunity here. And we try to, to solve uh, both of those major life problems uh, with Escape to El Salvador. That's fantastic. And um, so we last met in November. That was during the peak of the conference, right? Adopting 
adopting Bitcoin uh, conference. And um, there's a lot of people there, obviously, and many were tourists. Uh, a bunch of them stayed. And it seemed like there's a, a decent cohort of locals. And I've heard that there's more people that's been, that have been coming in. Um, where, uh, I guess you spend most of your time in El Salvador, or what's your, what's your place of, of choice in El Salvador right now? So I like uh, San Salvador, actually. Uh, that's where I've lived full-time since uh, uh, since. Uh, arriving and i definitely recommend the, the that capital, by the way correct the capital city uh so and it's sort of if you're looking at the map obviously el salvador isn't very large and it's right in the middle uh so you can't really mess it uh and it's where i recommend that folks go to to experience uh their first little taste of, of what it's like here and then as you get a little bit braver and you get your you know your logistics under your belt and you know how to uh, maneuver around the country then you can explore the countryside uh but i definitely like it and i really enjoyed the opportunity to, to meet so many great people at Adopting Bitcoin. And just uh, for anyone who's interested in looking at it, I'm going to drop the link of the video of uh, my presentation at Adopting Bitcoin in the chat. Awesome. Awesome. We'll definitely link that in the article as well. Um, great. So what has it been like since the conference in terms of community? Um, Is there meetups? Is there, uh, you know, what what's going on in the ground? Because, uh, you know, one of the big reasons or motivations that I see to move to El Salvador is obviously the the network effect, the people. Uh, Max Kaiser was saying that, uh, you know, I think he said something like 70,000 people had moved to El Salvador since they started this movement. Uh, what are you seeing on the ground? Yeah, certainly there's um, uh, an acceleration of the number of people who have decided to come and make this their home. And a lot of people are coming to kick the tires and see what it's really all about. You know, it's it's hard these days, I think, to understand a foreign country just from the media that you might get uh, wherever you live. So coming and seeing something with your own eyes is is absolutely critical. And it really speaks to the the Bitcoiner ethos, right? Don't trust, verify. Actually get here and and do the hard work. And you're going to be rewarded for that because you're a first mover, right? Uh, there are a lot of opportunities, and those are going to be uncovered by the first people to come here and, and turn over the rock. And um, I don't know about the total amount of numbers uh, that have that have come to El Salvador, but I would suspect that it's uh, I don't know probably in that neighborhood. But we we live in a couple of different areas, so there's there's definitely a a beach community, if you will, and a city community. Uh, even though it only takes about 45 minutes to an hour to, to kind of go between either one, everybody sort of, uh, you know, segregates into one of those two camps. And between the two areas, there are meetups. I'm going to say there's, there's at least something going on every week. Uh, so I'd probably say between, you know, six and eight meetups on a, on a monthly basis, just depending on what type of um, community you're in. Uh, there's a, a lot here that are focused around the, the education piece on the ground, actually going into uh, local cities and uh, schools and teaching the kids how to how to generate a secure seed phrase and put it on a wallet and wipe that and recover it on another wallet and, and move Bitcoin around. So we're really focused on educating around the technicals and the fundamentals. And then there are obviously groups that are more business oriented and networking oriented. So uh, whatever it is that you're looking to do, you can you can really get a taste of that here. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the big questions that people might have is around security. You know, obviously, El Salvador, up until uh, when Bukele took power, uh, El Salvador, I never thought I'd go to El Salvador. I never had any interest in El Salvador. 
it sounded like a very dangerous country. And after he took over and, and he put in this, um, I guess he started to to fight the Maras and, and then to deal with the security issues. All of a sudden, uh, the country has you know experienced this great re- uh, rebranding with Bitcoin. And from my uh, experience talking to people on the ground, security has, uh, you know, it's a very safe country since, since they did this, especially the capital and in, in, in various areas. I'm sure maybe on the edges of, of small towns outside, there's still things going on. I don't know. What are you seeing in terms of safety down there? So in, in terms of safety, I, th- I think it's fair to say at this point that El Salvador is trending as the safest country in the Western Hemisphere. And it has been doing that for, for several months now. The the exception regime, which is the the, the crackdown on the gangs, if you will, uh, that's been going on for just a little over a year now, and it's been extraordinarily successful. Um, it has also been a very uh, large in scope operation, and sometimes people don't really appreciate that. So I like to tell this little anecdote if, uh, if I can. There are many similarities between El Salvador, for example, and Afghanistan. Uh, We both have approximately 7 million people in population. And prior to the exception regime, about 1% of the population was in El Salvador tied with this criminal cartel and in Afghanistan uh, in Al Qaeda. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, all of the the people that were associated with uh, uh, terrorism uh, in, in that country. And, you know, as well as everyone else does listening to this, that for the you know 25 years or so, uh, the entire Western world was fighting a war in Afghanistan against uh, uh, against Al Qaeda and, uh, and and all of those other associated people. And n- not only did the war go on for that long, but I mean, I think it's fair to say that obviously the the West lost <laughs> that war and and spent you know a trillion dollars doing so and lost so many lives. Uh, but what happened in El Salvador? is virtually uh, the opposite. We won a Afghanistan-sized war in three to four months. We did it with only losing a handful of police officers. And we did it not only without the support of other Western governments, but actually in spite of their active opposition and, and meddling with our, with our affairs. Uh, so what we have actually accomplished in El Salvador is, is, is quite tremendous. And uh, to, to lay any concerns to rest, yes, it's uh, it's truly the, the safest country in, in the Western Hemisphere, and I expect that it will continue to be so for, for some time. That's wonderful. And you yourself are now a citizen of El Salvador? No, actually, I, I have a, a long journey ahead of me. Uh, because I'm originally from the United States, my process to citizenship is a five-year uh, process, and it involves becoming a temporary resident first and uh, going through a few years. At year three, I can become a permanent resident, and at year five, I can get citizenship. It's a little bit different uh, for your friend Red because she's coming from Spain, and Spanish nationals uh, can become citizens after only two total years, one year as a temporary resident and one year as a permanent resident. Uh, so your pathway to citizenship depends on your country of origin. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And we'll get into some of the more the details of the various nationalities in a little bit. Uh, but just to kind of do an overview, what about European citizens? 
Yeah. So if you're coming from Spain or a Latin American country, in other words, a Spanish speaking country, then your process is accelerated. For everyone else, it's basically a five year process. And there's one other uh, small section of law. If you happen to be born in Central America, specifically countries that were party to the uh, Central American Republic, which are you know Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador, uh, then you can basically naturalize or become a citizen right away. So the only difference for everyone else from outside of the Central American region is, did you come from a Spanish-speaking country or not? And if not, then it's a five-year process. Otherwise, it's two. Okay, that's, that's very cool. Um, what about the, the re-election of Bukele? I believe his uh, term is coming due maybe in a year or so. He, last I checked, was, you know, maybe the most popular president, I think, in recent history. Um, how do you see this? Because it seems to me that it's it's going to be very important that he is reelected so that the, the, the vision and strategy that he's been laying down can, you know, be finished or can be, you know, uh, can, find, can settle, so to speak. How do you see that playing out? Well, so I have to uh, answer your question in a rather oblique way. Um, uh, you could probably read between the lines and, and tell what what I would like to have happen. But understand that foreigners in El Salvador are constitutionally prohibited from participating directly or indirectly in local politics. And so it would actually be against the law uh, for me to sort of take a position in this uh, re-election. Uh, it's one thing to say that the country is going in the right direction, and I certainly believe that, and I'm happy to say that, but it would be another thing entirely to uh, directly or indirectly support a particular politician. But what I can tell you is that um, it definitely seems that, that people here are very encouraged about uh, the future, and they certainly like what has been happening over the last couple of years. And I expect that our current path of development will continue for many years to come. That's really interesting. Um, I, 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 I wasn't aware of those laws and I wonder, you know, what the rationale is. It, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it's kind of a, a safety measure against, you know, some of these NGOs and, Kind of that's exactly the, what it is. Quote unquote international community meddling in, in elections and such. Yeah, you have to appreciate the history of Central America and how it has been influenced uh, by its neighbors to the north uh, for, you know, all of its history, basically. Um, if you're if you or your your listeners want to do a little research, all you have to do is jump on a search engine and type in United Fruit Company and go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. That's a rabbit hole and a half. Uh, there's some good documentaries on it. That's very interesting. Um, as an American uh, citizen, are there any, let's say, laws or values that you recognize in El Salvador that, that are similar to American values or at least what they, you know, like what they ideally would be, right? Because America is kind of a very complex place these days. And there any, yeah. are there any laws that you that you recognize and appreciate, or and are there any that are similar and you don't like, or that are, or that you find missing? Yeah, I mean, I I believe that what El Salvador is trying to do is play out the game theory of the sovereign individual thesis, and what I mean by that is 
that smaller, more nimble countries are going to be able to create policies that they think will be attractive to not only their citizens, but to the sort of um, globetrotting set of the, the new wealthy and independent folks. And as a member of that community, I can say very comfortably that I'll go wherever I feel comfortable, but I don't expect to ever have a 100% match between my own personal ideology and the place where I live. I think that it would be unrealistic to assume that we live in a society, we live in uh, amongst uh, people that have different ideals. And part of civilization is coming up with compromises and uh, governing amongst ourselves in an acceptable way. And that means almost necessarily that you're not going to get every single thing that you want. And sometimes you have to meet halfway on some issues. Uh, And I think that's true in El Salvador. And I think that's true in every other country. And what you have to do is take a step back from that situation and say, what are the things that are truly important to me? And one of the things that I have always felt very uh, uh, felt was very important was financial privacy and the ability for me to decide what I want to do with my own money. And I've always been interested in the intersection of financial privacy and what we are experiencing in terms of our digital life today. And honestly, more and more of us are going in a direction uh, uh, in the digital world uh, where we where we need um, where we need that privacy, because uh, I, I think that we could have the conversation around central bank digital currencies and most of your listeners would be uh, very hip to the dangers of that. Uh, we really have to, to be careful how we navigate our immediate future. And so what I'm saying is that that's very important to me. And so that's why I'm here in El Salvador is because I believe that out of the entire uh, selection of countries that would be a good place to live in the world, El Salvador does the best job in that area. Are there areas where I wish that uh, we did a little bit better? Absolutely. That would be true uh, anywhere. But uh, as far as digital privacy and financial privacy goes, I think that uh, El Salvador is is the best place to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so what, one of the areas that I, that I wish Salvador would um, develop further, and it probably needs to happen in its, on its own timeline, since it's a country that is developing uh, would be, uh, let's say, um, something along the lines of the right to bear arms or, uh, let's say, strengthening of self-defense. You know, it is, I think, uh, as, a, as a fan of America's, let's say, grand vision, um, you know, I, I recognize that uh, weapons, you know, a, a, a well-armed and educated population is, is a very strong population and it makes for a country that's very difficult to invade and that, you know, overall uh, brings about more security. Do you see any, um, let's say, cultural interest or political interest in such a change? Or is that not really uh, in the map? Well, actually, I think that it's interesting that you bring this particular question up because so many people have it. And I'm not exactly sure why everyone thinks that Um, You can't have a a firearm in El Salvador. I'm going to drop a link in the chat. Uh, This is the actual gun policy for the country. And just so you're aware, individuals here have the ability to own, for example, pistols, long guns, and um, semi-automatic rifles uh, with a license. So it is a little bit more controlled than what you have in, in the United States. But I can assure you that gun ownership rates here are quite high. And anyone 
coming here from, you know, even the <laughs> even the most gung ho parts of Texas are going to feel right at home. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what do you know about the self-defense laws, right? Like if, if you know, if somebody breaks into your like house. Stand your ground. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So self-defense is a defense against uh, homicide charges here. It's a legal defense. Okay. And um, because of these, this um, war that has been waged over the past few months in El Salvador against MS-13 and such, um, my understanding is that the Constitution was kind of in in pause because of the state of emergency. Um, where do you see the state of emergency? Do you have any, you know, because I haven't, I haven't kept a close eye on El Salvador politics recently. Mm -hmm. um, is that, you know, do you see a, a, a return to constitutional uh, you know, defenses anytime soon or, you know, how's, how has that gone? <laughs> so the, actually the, the gentleman that you need to, to, to speak to um I'll have to find his contact information and uh, the, his handle on, on Twitter escapes me, but he's done some, some really good conversations. Uh, he actually uh, engaged in a debate with uh, Alex Gladstein on this very issue. And um, he would, he would be the one I think to better answer this question, but I'll, I'll give my fair college try here. So understand that, that people say things like the constitution was suspended, but That doesn't really tell the story here. So there are no due process elements that were denied to any of the people who are arrested. It's just that the parameters of those due process elements were expanded to accommodate the increased volume uh, of individuals that we were dealing with. So put yourself in the, in the situation of the judicial branch of El Salvador. <clears throat> It's set up to provide defendants with certain rights uh, in whenever they're accused of a crime, just like everywhere else in the world. El Salvador is a, is a nation with the rule of law very much in place. And what happened, though, is that we were contemplating uh, arresting a significant number of, of individuals because, like I said, let's go back to the Al-Qaeda situation. One percent of the population was involved in this criminal cartel, right? So you're talking a nation of seven million people. That's almost 70,000 individuals that we felt like as a country were going to need to be incarcerated. And there's simply no way to um, arrest and detain that number of people and give them the protections that were afforded under the sort of vanilla interpretation of the Constitution, which is like, uh, for example, you have to be able to be seen by a judge within 24 hours or, you know, because we have habeas corpus here, just like uh, every other country in the developed world. Uh, but what we did under the exception regime is extend those parameters. I don't have the details. I don't, I can't tell you, you know, specifically what it was increased to, but it basically allowed us to extend the amount of time that a person was able to be detained uh, before seeing a judge in order to accommodate uh, the, the number of people that we had to arrest. Uh, everyone still had the opportunity to a fair trial Uh, they they got to see the judge. They got representation uh, in a very streamlined way, uh, but it occurred. Uh, so all of the protections that you would expect to have under law, that was still applied to all of these 
um, uh, detainees, all, all of these uh, terrorists that uh, that were arrested. It's just that the, the length of time that they had uh, to, to meet, that the government of El Salvador had to meet, was extended. Otherwise, if we didn't do this, logistically, what would have happened is catch and release. We would have rounded up the, the worst of these uh, gang members, and we would have had to turn them loose after, say, 24 hours. Uh, and we didn't want to do that. And so we have made uh, a strategic change to the procedures as it relates to the individuals charged under this uh, terrorism regime. And that is what has been complicated or contemplated here. Now, it's easy to lose that bit of nuance if all you're receiving is information from the mainstream media or from uh, well-intended but sorely misinformed human rights activists. Yeah, that's uh, that's been my uh, experience uh, com- talking to people on the ground. Um, one of my with this Uber driver that I met, I'll just tell a short story on this. Uh, his brother was detained uh, under this regime as having had alleged connections with MS-13. His brother was a younger, younger, you know, man, probably in his early twenties, and he was telling me that that. The way that it worked before Bukele there was that you're kind of, you know, kind of raised, you know, in a somewhat dangerous environment before Bukele and, uh, you know, the Maras were around and they would try to kind of rope you in and, 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 and get you to join. And if you didn't join, you, ha- you face serious dangers not participating. So you kind of had to start playing ball a little bit. They start roping you in as kind of like a, like a spy or collaborator. And so when, when, when this um, this uh, operation was uh, launched, he was eventually kind of caught up in it, and he was telling me that he was basically put in like um, I guess he was he was captured or arrested, and then he was put into the legal process. And within about three months, he managed to get well. He 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 expected he he had like he first had like one trial, and they were like, okay, great, we're gonna hold you for a few more weeks, and then you'll have a second trial, and then a third trial. And the expectation was that he would be liberated because he wasn't really a collaborator. He didn't have any tattoos. He was just a kid that had, you know, some loose, you know, maybe somebody said that they saw him with some Mara, right? And so, you know, obviously, again, like the scale of delivering uh, justice and and, and due process to 70,000 people is, uh, you know, quite large, right? You need, you need time and a lot of, a lot of manpower for that. I'm going to follow up with my driver just to hear, you know, what, um, what happened there. But my expectation is that his brother is free at this point. And I, you know, I think that that really kind of paints a picture of, of, of this, this transition that they're going through. Let's, let's go back to uh, finance and money for a second. As I was leaving El Salvador, or actually a few weeks after I left El Salvador, I think the the law uh, around securities and crypto uh, was uh, instituted. I believe uh, I find an institution kind of like uh, an SEC equivalent for crypto was in- implemented. Um, can you fill us in on, on that process? You know, what, what has changed? Uh, what has been added to the Bitcoin law with this process? And um, yeah, where, where are we at with that? Well, we're still in a transitional state. 
the law contemplated the creation of two commissions, which would then have rulemaking authority to create the policy uh, that, that you're talking about. However, those commissions have not been convened yet. Uh, the people leading them have not been appointed. Uh, so we don't have an idea of any certainty what the policy will, will ultimately be like. So I don't really have a lot to tell you at this point. Um, other than the, the the promise of what President Bukele has said uh, in the past around uh, Bitcoin and around Bitcoin City specifically, and uh, we just have his basically his his track record and his actions to judge him by, and uh, I think they they speak very clearly that that he wants to push this country in a direction where. Uh, using Bitcoin is a fundamental path towards financial freedom for everyone who wants it. Right. And to be clear, Bitcoin is already uh, legal tender in El Salvador. That is correct. Uh, with, with all the protections that that brings. Um, what what would this, uh, let's say, second stage of of the law add to that? Um, just, just to have a picture of it. Yeah, so... That's, that's a really good question. Uh, please take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt because it is speculation. Yes, it's maybe, uh, you know, an educated bit of speculation, but uh, it's still my opinion. Um, I'm going to drop another link in your chat just so that you have uh, my full written thoughts on the subject. Uh, but basically, the one piece that I think is really interesting to most of your uh, listeners is the the functionality of the volcano bonds themselves. Okay. So let's start from a high level here. If you are a really big business, like a multinational business or a country, you have extraordinarily complicated finances, right? It's not sufficient for you to pay your bills based on the money that you're taking in from whatever income source you have. Instead, what you typically do is you issue bonds or debt in large amounts, and you do that based around a budget that you have for the next year. So in other words, you raise money to pay for your operations for a year, and part of those operations involve paying back that debt and all of the previous debt that you've had, and you just sort of roll these, these series of debts over and over and over again, debt financing on a large basis, right? So historically, how this has worked with uh, other countries, especially developing countries, is they've had to go to organizations like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, et cetera, and they've really had to sort of kiss the ring of these global bankers and financiers uh, who are operating out of London and out of Washington, D.C. and New York, and they've been forced into these bond, these, these debt repayment schemes that are impossible to get out of. And the only reason that they sign these agreements is because their their uh, governments are corrupt and they don't really care about what's happening to the people. They only want to finance for the next year and then get reelected if they can, and if not, retire with a golden parachute. So you have this cycle, this vicious cycle, uh, where these developing countries stay developing. And they can't ever break out of that cycle. And what is unique about the volcano bonds is it's a way for El Salvador to completely bypass the legacy financial system in this regard. We're not going to 
JP Morgan in order to issue our volcano bonds. We're going to Bitfinex, right? We're not going to a legacy big bank that's going to scrape 30% off the top and then dictate terrible terms on how we repay it. We're going to use the technology around Bitcoin and its secondary layers, specifically the liquid network, as a way to facilitate this new type of financing operation where we can break the chains of the legacy financial system and finance the operations of El Salvador in a way that allows us to actually become a developed equal partner in the world, a a sovereign among sovereigns. That's the goal here. And that's what's being allowed by the digital assets law that's been passed by the assembly and will be created by those commissions. So that's, that's about as much detail as I can give you in in an audio format, but check out the the article for uh, the real specifics and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, that's a great uh, overview. Appreciate that. Um, this uh, touches on the question of the national debt. Um, uh, Bukele, obviously, <laughs> there's this, uh, let's say, tension with the IMF. The IMF was saying that they weren't going to lend more money to El Salvador. Uh, not too long ago, there was a big story that broke. And, you know, obviously, the mainstream was, uh, well, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, where is El Salvador's national debt? And uh, did they manage to pay their dues? How's that going? Yeah, so... The, the way that sovereign debt works is that you, you issue notes that are payable at some point in the future, right? So we had notes that were maturing in 2023. Uh, we have another set of notes that are maturing in 2025. And then if um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm just going to throw a dart here. I think 2028 and 2030. Um, but across all of the debt that we have um, uh, established, we have that length of time to to pay it back, but the 2023 notes were coming due, uh, obviously pretty pretty quickly. And El Salvador did something uh, <laughs> quite unheard of, actually. Uh, you know, the president gets out in front of everyone and says, "You know what? We're just gonna we're gonna pay these back early." And the the returns on sovereign debt uh, are a function of risk, right? And the moment that he got up to to make that statement. Our bonds were trading somewhere in the neighborhood of the 60 cents on the dollar uh, because the market was placing, you know, that much upside uh, potential on uh, you taking the risk that El Salvador would actually pay off its bonds. But the bond market is notoriously manipulated. And um, it's my opinion that it was being manipulated down into the 60s to put additional pressure on uh, the government here. And so that's why. When President Bukele stood up and and said that we're going to pay it back early, that was a moment of political jujitsu where we uh, really turned uh, and reframed the, the, the situation on the bankers and said, you know, we're going to take advantage of the fact that you're pushing our debt down into the 60s and, and we're going to repay it. And his act of repaying it and, and just being bold enough to stand up and do that drove the price uh, into the high 90s. And so our debt was basically being traded on a, on a risk off basis uh, at that point. So I think that that was a, a, a very impactful thing for him to do. It certainly uh, had reverberations around the world. And now I can assure you that small nations uh, that are in similar circumstances are are obviously paying attention to, to what we're doing. And should the volcano bonds subscribe successfully, which I hope they will and think they will, uh, then I could definitely see that model being replicated. That's amazing. That's, that's, that's such, such a good story. Um, 
how do you imagine or what's your, uh, your your assessment of how they managed to to do this to you know obviously kind of shock the world by actually paying the debt early and and manage to raise that kind of uh, revenue? Well, yeah, it's a it's a confluence of of several different unique phenomena that come together uh, and, and sort of uh, support each other in a virtuous cycle. The first of of these is the fact that you know safety breeds growth. When you create a safe environment, you uh, give space to people that want to go out and be entrepreneurial and uh, develop new opportunities and create new wealth. Uh, that increases the tax base uh, without any new regulation. When you combine that with uh, anti-corruption efforts, so the people that were supposed to pay uh, a certain amount of taxes, now they are paying that amount of taxes. Uh, so compliance increases. Um, and then you also have the the phenomena of the rebrand, right? So calling El Salvador Bitcoin country, calling El Salvador, you know, a comeback country, uh, surf city, focusing on the pleasant reasons to come here, uh, encouraged tourists to visit uh, in, in, in numbers that hadn't been seen in this country for several decades. So the combination of all of these things brought record windfalls into the, 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 the Treasury's coffers and enable the country to do things like pay off its debt early, invest in infrastructure, invest in education, do things like increase the amount that, that pensioners were getting in their retirement so that they could have uh, you know, a dignified and, and comfortable life when they can't work anymore. You know, th- those kinds of, of projects were increasing here at the same time that uh, the, the administration was fighting uh, the equivalent of the Afghanistan war. I mean, I think that personally, President Bukele will go down in history as the president who uh, first adopted Bitcoin, right? Even though it's so much more than than just him, it's the assembly. But really, he should go down as a military tactician of almost unrivaled proportions because the uh, of being able to fight so many battles on so many fronts and win all of them. It's just a, a, a tremendously awe-inspiring thing to to watch happen. Yeah, definitely a, a, a maverick of the political world. Well uh, said. Very, very exciting. Hmm. And and one of the statistics that I that I reported on when I was there was I believe it was the IMF was saying that the El Salvador had one of the most uh, the strongest recoveries to the tourism industry in the world post COVID, uh, which Correct. I'm sure helped a lot. Correct. Um, okay, let's go back to well. Let, let's talk about Bitcoin sentiment. What you know, El Salvador has had to experience now. You know the the tail end of a bull market, right? And then in Bitcoin, and then go through a whole bear market. And it seems like we're breaking out of that bear market now. Um, from your you know experience on the ground, what is uh, El Salvador's yeah sentiment around Bitcoin right now? Um, so. The sentiment on the ground is really raw and exciting because I think the government made some really intelligent choices on how they were going to roll out Bitcoin in the country. Uh, we we chose to use an official wallet, Chivo wallet, and even though that was to the chagrin of many Bitcoiners around the world, uh, I don't think that everyone has appreciated the genius because this allowed uh, the local 
person who didn't know anything about Bitcoin to have a Bitcoin wallet on their phone and to transact over Bitcoin rails and only see dollar amounts and to be able to have instant convertibility in and out of dollars versus Bitcoin. So we all, the people who were using the Chivo wallet, were able to experience the ease of use of Bitcoin without the negative side effect of volatility, which is one of the immediate turnoffs for, uh, I guess, people who who adopt the technology uh, at the beginning. Uh, volatility is certainly a, a word that every Bitcoiner learns at, at the early stage of their of their rabbit hole, right? Um, so the Chivo wallet gave the uh, the government the ability to to introduce people to the concept, the ease of use of Bitcoin, the instant settlement of Bitcoin without uh, also exposing them to the volatility. And as a result, most of the folks that you talk to here don't really have an opinion about bull markets versus bear markets because it, it never really made sense to them. They were selling a, a particular product for you know $2 and they received $2 and that's all that they saw. They didn't understand that you know it was going over Bitcoin the network and, and they weren't necessarily holding Bitcoin uh, the token. Uh, so I think it's important to distinguish between those two like Jack Muller so uh, famously does. Uh, but to to go back to your to your point, what is the sentiment here? <clears throat> we've we've been able to educate around uh, Bitcoin and what it does at a really high level, not just on sort of part of the national conversation, but also you know boots on the ground in schools throughout the country. Uh, you know, from the east to the west, we've got volunteers that are going in and teaching these kids, like I alluded to earlier in our conversation, uh, and, and they're teaching them the fundamentals and the technicals of, of, of Bitcoin. And as they have learned, they have started you know watching uh, the, the charts maybe a little bit more. They've started being aware of the the sort of the macro economic factors surrounding Bitcoin. And I think that if you ask most people here, they would say that they're uh, very optimistic about what's going to happen in the future, because I think that just about anybody reasonable can look at the chart and, and come to the same conclusion, Juan, that you did, is that, you know, we, we seem to be turning a corner and uh, we have brighter days ahead. And not only does it look that way from a sort of uh, technical analysis perspective, but we also look at the fundamentals, not just in terms of the uh, increasing adoption of new uh, technologies and upgrades to Bitcoin, but also the the crumbling fundamentals of the fiat world uh, all around us. Uh, we know that central banks around the world have backed themselves into a corner where the only choice that they have is to, to print in ever-increasing amounts. And we know that yeah, we're going to enter a hyperinflationary cycle. We know that uh, that that the the growth of the money supply is going exponential uh, in the very near future, and uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going to be the result of that. So, I think that most people on the ground here are very optimistic, and uh, yeah, I, I think that anyone who comes here will will be able to see that quite clearly. All right. Well, that those are all very uh, very positive. Uh, news and messages and you know something that I think the world needs I mean I really appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to to answer some of those questions because I, I do think it's important that people hear that perspective and you know if you're not a, a constant watcher of what's going on in El Salvador some of that nuance what may miss you uh, but I think it's important when you are trying to form your opinions about you know something so complex as an entire country or even just one individual in that country so thank you guys for the opportunity and I really appreciate it and hopefully we we can do it again soon.
Yeah, I'd love to have you on again anytime. There's clearly a lot to talk about. Um, where can people find your work, your company, and maybe give us a little bit of a quick pitch as to what they can expect to, um, what kind of services they can expect to, to get from you guys? Absolutely. So the number one thing to do is to check us out online at escape2elsalvador.org. There's a lot of information on the website. Read through it. If you have specific questions after that, uh, there are contact forms. You can reach me on Twitter. I'm an extremely online kind of a guy. So if you tweet me on, on, on Twitter, I'm going to respond right away. And whatever questions you have, what you can expect is that I'm going to be very responsive and give you the, the brass tacks. And if you're serious about moving to El Salvador and starting a new life here, I'm going to go overboard and I'm going to do everything that I can to help you achieve that goal. So I look forward to assisting you.